You are listening to The Real Faith Stories Podcast, interviews with people who chose to boldly follow their faith. I'm your host, Brian Robinson. Now, let's meet our guest and hear their story. Tim, welcome to Real Faith Stories. Really looking forward to our conversation today. Thank you, Brian. I'm excited to talk to you all. So I feel like we've really connected. Looking forward to this conversation. You had $15 million of real estate holdings, a seven-figure coaching business, and seven-figure lead generation business for real estate investors, lost everything, and wound up becoming homeless. But we're not going to go there yet. I'd love for you to share a bit of your backstory regarding where you grew up, how you came to faith, and how you got into the real estate space. Then we'll dig into how you became homeless and what's happened since then? I grew up in the Atlanta area, and I always tell people I grew up in a small town just outside of Atlanta that during the course of me growing up got swallowed up by Atlanta. And I think that was part of kind of who I became and who I am because I've got a little bit of small town in me, and then I've got a little bit of city in me. Growing up in the South, we got Bible Belt, and none of that Bible Belt stuff stuck until much later in life. I mean, it was in there, but I was. I was a child of the 60s, 70s. I'm at the tail end of the baby boom generation. And so I really was chasing after that model of success that we started seeing materialize in the late 70s, 80s, where it was go, go, go. I think there's a movie. I think it's Wall Street. And Michael Douglas's character uses the comment that greed is good. And I I was a nice person. I think you would have enjoyed being around me, friendly, all that type stuff. But I was going after success pretty hard. And so that was kind of where I was. Popped in and out of churches a few times, special holidays, things like that. But I never really thought much about the higher power or anything. Most things were primarily about me growing up. So when did you encounter Jesus? Well, I think we all find that later in life he was pursuing us and he was there all along, especially when we look back on things. Yeah. I think he's looking for opportunities when we humble ourselves and when we stop being all about ourselves. And so I I got married to beautiful wife and she had quite the spiritual foundation. We had some spiritual conversation before we get married. And I do not want to say right here with recording going that I lied. That's not appropriate, but I may have told a fib to, to be able to to marry my wife, and she may have seen through it, maybe not. I don't know, but we got married and started our life together. We started popping in and out of church a few times then, engineer by training, and I was just, I was go, go, go. I was wanting to make me some money, mm-hmm. and I kind of got involved with some political things, and I kind of knew in the political arena I needed to pop into church. <laughs> I need to kind of be seen and yeah. things like that, and I'm really painting quite a beautiful picture of myself here. And uh, and so my wife was praying for me all along. Find this out later, Brian, that and when we a few years into being married, I'd been working corporate and she's got a prayer journal where she was praying for something that would make me the spiritual head of our household that would bring in some kind of money for us so that she could stay home. We were about to have our first child. So what ended up happening is we actually ended up getting into a multi-level marketing business. I was working corporate and working my way up. And this is kind of an odd story, but I think it needs to be shared. 
I got involved with this multi-level marketing. It's the Amway business. I think most people should know that name. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people now, their heads are spinning and they've got these weird looks on their face. That's where I got saved. That's where I met Jesus, Brian. So I can't say that it was a bad experience because at a conference about six months later, I was trying to get a good front row seat on a Sunday morning. And they said, we've got this non-denominational church service that we're having. I said, that's awesome. Great. I'm just trying to get good seats so I could be here for the afternoon session. And you got a guy that got up and he preached the gospel and a few thousand people went down front and I went down Mm. and that's, that's where I met Jesus. So I think Brian, the reason is kind of interesting in the conversation about faith. I did not meet Jesus in that impactful decision time in a church. Like a lot of people will say that they have. Mine was in a business setting. And so my paradigm for Jesus, for ministry, for the gospel, for sharing has pretty much been the marketplace since then. And this was, we're talking early 90s. We're talking like 91, 92 here. I think it was still a gradual process. I know some people are like, you make a decision and that's it. No, I I probably went down front a few more times over the next conferences that we had and all that. And there was still a, a work in progress going on in my heart. And And I was still softening around the edges and trying to learn that the world was more about others and about my father that created me instead of about me. And to some degree, I'm probably still working through that like a lot of us are. After you experienced that, went down a few times, obviously you were working through that personally. There were some things going on in the background regarding your business When did you make this shift and move into real estate? What prompted that? I'm curious. Well, I was still working corporate while we were in that multi-level marketing business in the early 90s, and we did really well with it. I was able to leave my corporate job in the mid-90s, and we were doing well in all aspects, marriage, family. Everything was really moving along well. In the late 90s, things shifted a little bit in that business got a little bit tougher. I was always doing coaching, teaching, training, and leadership development. Before I left Bell South, I was with their leadership institute. And so I was always gravitating toward those things. But shortly after 2000, I started acquiring some real estate in and around the Atlanta area. I had partners in that business that were very helpful. But I'm an industrial engineer from Georgia Tech. So most things I do, I like to think that I can scale them. Mm. Sometimes I should, sometimes I shouldn't. That's the pause that we'll learn about later that we need to hear from the Lord on. But we started buying up three, four, sometimes five houses a month, single family homes primarily. And then I've always been wired to coach. Coaching, teaching, training is just what's baked into me. And so after a year or so, people kept asking, what are you doing? How do you do it? And so we started a what became a national coaching, teaching, training business for real estate investors. And then we spun off a lead generation business for people that wanted to sell their houses. And so we built all that up. And for anyone who has any wherewithal about timing, we did that all through the early 2000s leading up to 2008, which is when things shifted quite a bit. Yeah, to say the least. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me where you were with respect to this empire in 2008. What were your holdings? What did that look like? What did it look like in terms of the people that you were coaching? We had over 100, we'll call them doors, single family homes, condos, some land down in Florida, 
pieces of real estate that would have been valued at the time. And again, we we say air quotes valued at the time because there were some things that were probably bubbled up a good bit mm. in 2008. It would have been over 15 million when we were doing our balance sheets and things like that. We had over 15 million in real estate. Had a coaching business that would have been a strong seven-figure business also. And that was really the thing that I love to do. That's where I really get a lot of passion from. I love real estate, but I really love coaching, teaching, training. So I was out speaking and we had a thousand plus students with about 110 that were paying a high ticket to uh, get one-on-one coaching and teaching training. We did the masterminds and things like that. And and then the lead gen business, which was kind of on autopilot, was a nice, healthy, right at seven-figure business also. So that's where we were as we stormed into 2007 and eight with all that occurred then. And then over a period of five years, you found yourself bankrupt and homeless. What happened? We have this thought, especially if we're believers and we're following Christ, that look around at what we're doing and it's it seems obvious that God is blessing us. I mean, look around, look at the companies, look at the business. We're living in a big old house in a country club community. And then all of a sudden something shifts in what I'll call Babylon, the world system, hmm. which is exactly what happens. And 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 then we kind of in our minds go, oh, well, I'm part of God's family. I'm a child of God and he will provide, he will take care of us. And that is a correct statement. However, his provision and his providing may not look like our provision and our providing. And I think that's the disconnect that many of us have. And so I continued thinking, God is going to reverse this, correct this. It's all going to be good. And so one of the things I was doing was in it from a pure practical standpoint, and people will use this term a lot without really realizing what it means. But we were robbing Peter to pay Paul. We were taking credit lines and all, thinking if we could live to see another day, then we would be okay. I mean, we had a lot of obligations, investors and debt and things like that, that we were managing and monitoring. And listen, I want to say, we knew it was coming. I mean, we had coaching clients all over the country. I mean, I was in tune with what was happening in real estate, knew a little bit of what was going on in the banking world at the time. We knew it was coming. The thing that we didn't allow for was, and this is my way of saying it, maybe this is trying to justify, that the government was going to prop things up for so long. I thought we were heading for a big crash. We were kind of prepared for a quick rip the Band-Aid off crash. Well, it ended up lingering much longer than we thought it would. Mm -hmm. So it created issues with partners. It created issues with investors. It created issues with creditors. What it was basically like was just a slow sinking in a quicksand where I felt extremely helpless, did not know what to do. And prior to that, I was one of these guys that I felt pretty confident that if I was in a tough spot, I could work my way out of it, figure out my way out of it. I could come up with a plan, come up with a strategy. I'm pretty darn smart. And it got to the point where I was just to the place where I could not. And during that time, my wife and I were in this big house, not bringing any revenue, watching things just slowly slowly just dissipate all around us. And the only thing we need to do was to just sit down in the morning, get a cup of coffee, open up the Bible, and just spend time in the Word. And there was times during those years, that's five years, that we would spend four or five, six hours just studying the Word. Some of it was probably crying out to the Lord. I won't sit here and say it was totally virtuous and we were bold and confident. No, it was probably like, what in the world? Lord, what is going on? Oh, yeah. But that's what we did 
leading up to 2013 when we kind of came to the end of the line where we had to say, you know what, we're finished with this house. We lost it. We've gone through the bankruptcy and everything. And I could, because of the knowledge that I had, probably manipulate, maneuver, and stay in the house longer. But what was the point? There wasn't reason for it. So in 2013, my wife and I looked at our almost grown children, 19 and 21, 22 years old, and told them there wasn't going to be a house to come home to, that they needed to kind of go out on their own. And my wife and I loaded up what was then an old Honda van with a few things, and we piled in it, and we hit the road. And uh, pretty much have been traveling ever since. <laughs> wow. For 10 years. Yeah, 10 years. Now, we're, we're traveling different now. We're in a motor coach, and uh, we still call ourselves nomads. And we're doing it with more financial means than we've ever had. But uh, we're not we're not spending it like we once did. During that five-year period as you're, I don't know what else to do. We'll get up and have a cup of coffee. We'll cry out to the Lord. We'll study the Word. You indicated this was intensely humbling, which of course it would be. Explain when you had this sense that everything was going to be lost. What was that like, you and your wife walking through that, and then finally actually opening your palms up and just saying, okay, Lord, we surrender. We can't do anything here. I would like to point to a moment, but in in reality, I'm sure it was a process. There are two things that I believe I'm equipped with that are helpful in many situations, but it's also hurtful. I think we're equipped with what we'll call superpowers, but our superpowers can become our kryptonite if we allow them to. I am an extremely optimistic person, and I was optimistic before I even knew Lord. I just feel like everything's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. And then also, I had this pursuit of more that now I call an addiction to more that many people in our culture have, by the way. It's, it's just whatever we have is never enough. And so that causes me to constantly be building, growing, building, growing, scaling, building, growing, building, growing. And that's a good thing until it's not a good thing. And so all along, Brian, I was, I was living this optimistic, maybe almost delusional thought that, you know what, something miraculous is going to happen. It's going to save the house and we're going to be A-OK. Even tried to get a job at a McDonald's just outside the gates of the big country club community we lived in. And I couldn't even get a job at McDonald's because my thought was, oh, I'm going to humble myself and just go flip burgers. I couldn't even do that. It's almost like the Lord just wanted me to be, I'll use the term broken. I needed to die to self. I needed for it to be less of Tim and more of him. Because what I recognized was that I had compartmentalized my life like most people do. In my marriage, I think the Lord was very involved with my marriage. That's probably how it it continues to be going on 35 years today that my wife and I stayed together during all of that. I believe that in raising our children that we allowed the Lord to be a part of it. But when it came to business and financial stuff, I just thought I was pretty darn smart. And I compartmentalized and I would get great ideas from the Lord. And then I would say, Lord, Thanks for the great idea. I got this. You can go take care of somebody else right now. I'm going to go on, on my own power and do this. And I think people do that in a lot of areas, by the way. We're a very compartmentalized society. And so part of my getting to the point of just being open-handed was getting to the place where I recognized there was nothing else that I can do. And to kind of fill in some gaps in the story, Brian, my wife and I jumped in the Honda van and we literally we're in a stage where we were living off manna. We had no financial resources. 
nothing coming in. We had some family that would help from time to time, but we didn't want to be overly burdensome to them. And we were traveling, living out of a Honda van, and we ended up house-sitting. Now, this has got some biblical tones to it, but we ended up taking care of people's homes. Usually, there was a pet involved where we didn't pay for the house. We didn't pay bills. We didn't. Sometimes there were food stocked in the pantries and a nice bottle of wine in the wine cellar. And, and that's what we lived from time to time. We were living in homes that we didn't build, pay for, or anything like that. We ended up in New Zealand for nine months. Our daughter had gone over there to be an au pair, and so we were going to visit her. But we were living homes. And in New Zealand, kind of like the total opposite of the world of Atlanta, Georgia, where we had grown up. We were on the South Island of New Zealand. We were down there for three months. And my wife and I both point to that time as probably being the bottom, the lowest point. And it was a little bit cold. It was winter down there. And it was where we just came to this place of, it's not about us. It's about him. And we need to submit and turn everything over to him. Mm. And I won't say that it was an immediate, the skies parted and we had this experience, but Shortly thereafter that, I started getting calls from people that said, hey, listen, Tim, we know your background and all that. Can you help us with this business? Or we ended up going to Bible school for a few years shortly after that. And and we just started having financial, I'll just call them resources, kind of pour into us. But we didn't think about them in the same way that we had previously. So if we point to a place, it was probably at a very low point in New Zealand on the South Island in a little town called Pleasant Point of all things. So that would be that would be a fairly significant time that we would point to. Where were the resources coming in from primarily during that time? Obviously people letting you stay in their homes watching their animals etc or house sitting, but were you starting to coach and then you were earning some income that way? No. We, <laughs> that happened about a year or so later. My wife had written a few books in the early 2000s that would bring in, and when I say resources, we're talking about a few hundred bucks here. I'm talking about thousands. I mean, people hear that we lived in Australia, New Zealand, and they go, oh my gosh, must be nice to have all that money. No, we <laughs> we uncannily got airfare from LA to, to, uh, to Brisbane, Australia for like $400. Wow. It was just uncanny what was happening. And we, we've kind of gone through these phases. We literally consider that time in our lives manna, the manna phase, because we were wandering. We weren't sure where we were going to do. There were sometimes on a Friday, we weren't sure where we were going to be on a Sunday or Monday. We were just opening up and saying, Lord, where do you want us to go? What do you want us to do? Open up doors, close doors if we need to not do that. And so we would have a situation where someone who had owed some money would kind of miraculously say, hey, listen, I know I owe you a few hundred bucks and I wanted to get that to you that I had kind of written off or mm-hmm. or someone in the family, you know, that my parents would give a gift when it was around birthday time. And then we had a few dollars coming in from my wife's books, but I didn't really start doing what I do now, which is executive coaching, leadership coaching until 2015. We had traveled back to the States went to visit some friends up in the mountains of Colorado. And while we were there, bumped into some folks that were at a Bible school. And we felt as if the Lord was saying, you need to go to Bible school. And we said, wow, that's awesome. Okay, let's let's do that. And as we started Bible school, I don't know if it was obedience. I don't know if it was something happened. But in March of 2015, when we made that decision, 
we didn't start till later 2015. But in the first three months of March of 2015, we had made $17. My wife had started doing some some temp type work. She's like a a chief of staff. And so she was doing that kind of as a, as a contract work. So she had made, she had just started that and made $17 the first (laughs) three months of 2015. By the end of 2015, when I was working on our taxes, we had had 12 different sources of revenue that had come into our household, our business. And I was working with about eight to 10 clients that had literally reached out to me, people that had known me for years didn't really know the situation because I hadn't really shared a lot. They probably knew something was up. So that started pouring in and it and it literally the financial resources just started coming into us. I'm going back to Pleasant Point and the lowest point. Mm-hmm. It seems as though after that you started to have people reaching out to you for coaching. Is that accurate? Something did change there. Yes. Yeah. I think it's fascinating to me as you share your story that it's almost like God was engineering this whole movement for you to finally release everything. And he knew when the timing was right to fire things up on the coaching side and to get you reconnected because you were a different person by then, literally in the way you were thinking about him and your role in the world. Isn't that fair? It absolutely is. And there's a whole nother layer to this. And this is a question I think we all need to ask. And that is, what is our identity? I think it's at the root of who we are, is what what do we believe our identity is? Am I a coach? Am I a CEO? Am I a teacher? Am I a pastor? And many times we put titles to our identity. And really, at the root, there are only two identities that we can have on this earth. We can either be an orphan or we could be adopted, period. There's really no other identity at our root core. The truth of the matter is, even though I had accepted Jesus Christ, I was doing all the things that we do as believer. I probably had some spirit of being an orphan that was still in me. And at that point, I think is when I was at the place where I could really submit and admit that I was adopted and no longer orphaned. And I want to bring that up because we could, and some people get bothered by this theology, but we could have gone down front in a church or a business meeting like ourselves, and we could have read the Bible, studied the Bible, gone to church for years and years and years like I did, but still we may not have died to self. We may not have set that identity that we have built up for ourselves, that worldly identity, Mm -hmm. set it aside so that we can truly step into that assignment, that role that we have in God's kingdom. I think that's really where the real faith comes in. And sometimes I think we may, I'm not saying we fool ourselves because I I think it's all part of that journey. But for me, you know, it started in 1991. It may have started before then, but I think it culminated in 2014. So some would say, gosh, that's quite a long journey. Well, I think part of what, part of the stories you're telling here is, that most people go on those journeys, right? Yeah. The sanctification process for each person is so different. In some cases, it's quicker. In other cases, it's long. It's lifelong, ultimately, that sanctification of us yielding ourselves to him. But it's just fascinating to me how God completely intervened in a long 
period of time for you to get to this place of recognizing that you are his adopted son and no longer an orphan, no longer without a father. And when you came to that realization, what was that like, Tim, that you were no longer an orphan? Well, it was beautiful in that I finally admitted that Tim wasn't as great as he thought. You know, I know people listening in, there's kind of groupings of people. There's some people that probably their life before they come to know Christ, before they step into God's kingdom, maybe a life where they have low confidence or not as much confidence in what they can do or achieve or things like that. And that's fine. That's not really my story. My story is confidence, arrogance, cockiness. I thought I was a pretty bright guy. And so my story is a little bit more of a breaking down to the point where I recognize how much I need him. I have to daily ask, Lord, what is my assignment today in your kingdom? Not my kingdom, not the little world that I've created, but in your kingdom. Mm. What is my assignment today? And I have to break it down and I have to make sure that I've laid it before him. And I sometimes do it very well, I think, and sometimes I don't. Sometimes we will go back to, especially if we get fatigued and tired, go back to an old way of doing things. But in general, I I feel as if I have moved closer to a place of humility that I need to be in. And I think that's what's been helpful with working with the people that I work with, working with the leadership teams, the companies, the businesses, the ministries, is that I don't think I had the perspective prior to going through all this that one really needs to communicate. Because you could you could talk about what it's like to be homeless all day long. We use the word nomad, by the way. It just sounds better. But we were homeless, <laughs> just to, to be clear. And I think that's one of the big fears that a lot of people have of not having financial resources, being homeless, things like that. But once you've lived through it and you realize that God brought us through it, It's like, I don't want to do it again. I wouldn't wish it on anybody else, but I'm thankful we did because it's brought me to the place I'm at today. It's made me the man I am today. Mm. It's humbled me. It's shown me what I can do in his kingdom. It's shown me how frivolous and fleeting material possessions are in the world we're in. And those were things I was pursuing with vigor at one point in my life. Mm-hmm. I've come to believe that our time here on this earth, in this eternity that we've chosen to live in, and we have made that decision to live an eternal life by accepting Jesus Christ and overcoming death and all the things that he did on, cross and be, on the cross and being reconnected with our Father. I really now believe that our time here is all about getting our hearts conditioned for eternity so that our heart is softened and open and in the place that God wants it to be for all eternity. And I think if we keep our mind on that, then we don't kind of get bogged down with a lot of the the junky stuff that we see going on in this Babylonian system around us. I'm curious, Tim, with respect to your coaching now, looking at things from a 90-10 perspective, 90% of the time, What is one of the biggest questions or issues that you tend to coach people through? Uh, That's a great question. And I wrote about this in a recent novel, and I talk about it a good bit. The word love is the most important word we have, I think, in our modern day culture. I think it's the most important word for leaders, for people that are running organizations. I'll even say this. I think it's the most important thing for people in ministry. I think it's unfortunately sometimes there's a void there. 
And so 90% of what I believe that I do is bringing people into alignment of making their actions show the love that's supposedly (laughs) in their heart. In other words, what does it mean when you oversee employees, when you oversee an organization? What does it mean when you are implementing system structures, things like that? What does it mean when love is at the core of it? Now, do I always come right out and say that? No, not necessarily. But in sharing with you, I'm saying it everything has to be injected with love. You know, we've just come out of a weird situation over the last three years with COVID and I'm working with organizations as we're going through all that. And it was really dicey. Which side are you on? We Everybody had to divide up and things like that. And we were going through all that. And at the foundation of that, I think is how are we showing love? And if we're not and we are people of faith, then I would really question our, our actions and our beliefs in alignment. I think it's bringing love into everything we do is what I would say. And it that doesn't really look great on a business card or anything <laughs> when you're doing coaching for people, but that's the truth of the matter. And all. He's the love guy, the love coach. Yeah, the love coach. Yeah, that I don't know about that. I'll, I'll ask my wife if she thinks <laughs> I, if that would be okay for me to put that on my business card. I'm I think I know the answer already. (laughs) Yeah, that's great, Tim. I also believe that people that move into leadership roles, whatever it is in our culture, they get confused. They actually believe that they own whatever it is they're over. And I really believe that they're a steward instead of an owner. And a steward is an overseer, a caretaker. And a steward has a responsibility to return something when they're finished with it in a better condition than when they received it. That's good. And I believe any role that people are in, they're in a role that's a gift from God. If if someone has a car, if they have a car, I think as a steward, you've got to take care of that vehicle. You need to take care of it so that when you're done with it and you hand it off to someone else or you're finished with that role, you're not the owner, you give it back. It is your responsibility, especially if you're a kingdom of God person to return that in a better condition than when you received it. That includes people, organizations, businesses, money, anything like that. I think there's a lot of love laced in on that, but that actually is something that I see also. How can people find out more about you, Tim? Pretty easy, timwinders.com, W-I-N-D-E-R-S.com, and they could find, we've got a podcast where we talk about redefining success and leadership business and ministry there. We're really getting on this kick of faith-driven leadership recently. And they can find the novel that I wrote that is kind of an interesting little twist on some things I did. But timwinders.com, they can find out all about me and connect with me there. Perfect. As we finish, Tim, would love to have you pray for our listeners, please. Absolutely. Lord, I just thank you for this time with Brian and those that are listening in, Father. One thing that I desire so much to understand what it means to be adopted into your kingdom. Father, I know that there are people that are that understand that. And then there are people that are questioning, gosh, am I adopted or am I an orphan? And right now my prayer is for that spirit of adoption to just overtake the soul and the heart of that person that's listening right now, Father, so that they know without a doubt that they are loved, they are loved unconditionally, and you have a desire for them to be adopted into your kingdom, Father. Above everything else, above any challenges or issues that they're going on, you want them in your kingdom to be adopted in, Father. So I praise you right now. That's what you're doing with anyone listening. 
You're showing them that you want to bring them in to your kingdom, Father. Praise you for that. Amen, amen. Amen. Thank you, Tim, for sharing your story. Loved hearing it. Thank you, Brian. Enjoyed the conversation. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. Please make sure you subscribe to the show and share this with someone you believe would be encouraged and motivated by these stories. Until next time, I'm Brian Robinson reminding you that the greatest decision you could ever make is to ask Jesus Christ to become the Lord of your life. If you haven't done that, read Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 11. Thanks again for listening.